This week on the show, we cover the origin of the shell. We also return to plan nine. We tell you the RS Blue approach to why a new BSD. The OpenSense 20.7.0 release is what we briefly cover, as well as the Midnight BSD 2.0 release status. A hardened BSD November 2020 status report is what we read, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 381, Shell Origins, recorded for the 9th of December 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to get the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, everyone. As the year sooner rather than later draws to a close, but we're not quite there yet, so you can fill the time in between with a little episode from BSD Now. And the headlines here have the origin of the shell over at multitions.org. Yeah, uh, so they're talking about CTSS, which is MIT's mainframe computer, uh, was developed during 1963-1964. It was at MIT on the computer center staff at the time, and so after having written dozens of commands for the CTSS, I uh, reached the stage where I felt that commands should be usable as building blocks for writing more commands, just kind of like subroutine libraries. Hence, I wrote the program Runcom, a sort of shell uh, driving the execution of command scripts with argument substitution. The tool became instantly more popular as it became possible to go home in the evening while leaving behind long-running jobs. I could run overnight. It was a neat for boring and repetitive tasks such as renaming, moving, updating, compiling, etc. Whole directories of files for systems and application maintenance and monitoring and all that kind of stuff. In the same vein, I also felt that commands should be usable as library subroutines or vice versa. This stemmed from my practice, which was unique at the time, of writing CTSS commands in MAD or the Michigan Algorithm Decoder, a simplified Algol-like language. It was much faster and the code was more maintainable than writing IBM 7094 assembly code. Uh, since I needed that MAD-friendly subroutine calls to access the CTSS primitives uh, that I had written in assembly code, a battery of interface subroutines, which very often mimic the CTSS uh, basic command functions. Uh, or I wanted to make commands out of subroutines which handled common chores. I felt it was awkward duplication of effort. However, I did not go much further in that context. Uh, but then in 1964 came the Multix design, in which I was not much involved because I had made it clear that I wanted to return to France in 1965. Uh, however, the idea of using commands somewhat uh, or somehow like a programming language was still in the back of my mind. Christopher Strachey, a British scientists had visited MIT about that time, and his macro generator design appeared to me a very solid base for a command language, uh, in particular the technique of quoting and passing arguments. Without being invited on the subject, I wrote a paper explaining how the Multics command language could be designed with that objective, and I coined the word shell as the name for it. I must have been at the end of 1964 or the very beginning of 1965. And he has a link to the paper. 
the shell, a global tool for calling and chaining procedures in the system. The, also the paper on Runcom, a macro procedure processor for the 636 system. The small gang of Multics wizards found it to be a very sleek idea, and they wanted something more refined in terms of language syntax. As time left me was or left to me was short, and I was not an expert in language design, I let the issue uh, or left the issue for them to debate, and instead I made a program flowchart uh, in the shell. It was used after I left for writing the first Multics shell. Glenda Schroeder from MIT and a person from GE did the work. But time sharing was a misnomer. While it did allow the sharing of a central computer, its success uh, derives from the ability to share other resources, like data, programs, and concepts. Uh, it cracked a critical path bottleneck for writing and debugging programs. In theory, this could have been achieved as well with a direct access approach. In practice, it could never have been that way. Direct access hems users into a static framework. Evolution is unfrequent and controlled by central or distant agents. Creativity is out of the user's hand. Time sharing, as it became popular, uh, is a living organism in which any user with various degrees of expertise can create new objects, test them, and make, th make them available to others without the administrative control and hassle. With the internet uh, experience, this is no longer needs to be substantiated. But imagine if you had to go through the faff of like building an entire program in a framework and so on every time you wanted to do an awk one-liner. Hmm. Yeah, just for that. Or just the pipelines that I use on like a weekly basis of, you know, some jumble of POSIX shell for loops with <laughs> said and find and uh, sort unique cat, awk, etc. All mixed together. If I had to actually write in C, a, a program that, you know, read each line as input and applied those decisions to them for each one, I'd never get anything done compared to, you know, I needed to, hey, here's this log file. It's tab delimited. There are 34 fields. Uh, field number 17 is the IP address. I want to just find the first and last timestamp each of those IP addresses were seen. So I just piped the whole thing into awk and say, hey, awk, two arrays, one called first with the key of the IP and you can put the timestamp and then a second one called last. We don't overwrite the one in first. So we just check if the, it's already set first, but the last one we always overwrite in the end, print those out and look at, I now have IP address, first timestamp we saw it, last timestamp we saw it, outputted and I'm done. Right. If you each had each time had to write a big C program for that, because now the file format has changed, that would be not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. And just looking how people use the shell differently and just customize it to their own way of working and their own keyboard combinations and shortcuts, it's just so unique to every user. And you cannot press that into a, you only are allowed to use it one way in the static framework. So yeah, that makes also um, one of the, you know, attractive things for people. Hey, this is my Unix. This is my shell. This is my environment. I work in this every day. So it might as well have my color scheme or my customizations. But yeah, if you want to check out the, the rest of the website, there is plenty of interesting stuff. And this article we just read is from 25th of November, 2000. So that's already a bit of an... Uh, history there itself, but uh, the rest of the page also has some interesting things. People pictures, for example.
Okay, but that's not all of the history things uh, that we have for you. There's also return to plan nine. In this article here uh, over at boxspace.org, uh, plan nine from Bell Labs has held the same charm after their last visit that took a few days. They linked that to separate articles. Uh, this time they'll keep this operating system in an emulator where they can explore it uh, when they are distracted. So they downloaded Ninefront's ISO image and retrieved papers and manuals for the system. Uh, they're going to tell about the initial experiences that were left from running Ninefront on QEMU and explain why uh, they're explore uh, into this system. So first, the installation. This system is... Uh, or does it not require an installation to computer? It comes on a live CD and you can use it to boot from an existing Plan 9 root server in your network because everyone has that by now, right? Um, <laughs> the installation of Plan 9 was straightforward. There's a program guiding you through it if you need it. Copy the disk image to root directory, write the boot record for the computer, and set configuration file for the kernel. The resulting blank system comes with a package set curated by Ninefront community that can be configured to your liking. After installation, they created a new user through the file server connection and ran the uh, slash lib, uh, slash sys, slash lib, slash new user script to open up the Windows system. They had to retry the installation three times before they found the right settings, but found then this acceptable when much better funded systems often have similar performance. Then uh, manuals. They like that they still extensively use the man pages and that can find the most information about that in there. Uh, they've already liked the contents numbered by section in Unix manuals, so that's familiar. Many of the papers and text you can find from Plan 9 website are worthwhile to read. I think I've just uh, read the introduction to operating system abstractions twice through now because I had read it before. In the previous post, they referenced uh, Schopenhauer's writing about authorship and style. Man proposes that if you find a good writer, then let him tell his thing himself and don't quote him. A post I made before that is also great read and it tells what I recently learned about writing. And in the file namespaces, they say that Plan 9 has been designed to be discoverable. Every driver that exposes features through directories has their own hashed letter that can be listed by cat calling slash dev slash drivers. Do you want to know what state uh, do processes lug around? Everything's exposed in the slash proc directory. You can pick a process there and ls to see what's in a process. Uh, at first sight, per process namespaces are confusing, but it is actually quite simple as it is controlled by process forking. The windowing system forks a new namespace and process for each window you open. It's useful that this behavior depends on the context. After you've tried a resolution with a terminal command, you may want that the system boots with a resolution. You can set this into the kernel by running 9fs 9fat or 9fat. Uh, it mounts the boot directory and you can access the config in slash n slash 9fat slash plan9.ini. However, if you look this from the uh, other window, it's clear that they don't see the mount point you created in the other window. And so the 9fs itself would seem to be a script. By examining it, it would out that the command ensures that the DOS SRV is active and then tells it to mount the partitions. There is more about uh, keyboard layouts, on-screen keyboards, Windows system, soft restart, the boot process, environment variables. So it's really an overview of uh, people or for people who have not used Plan 9 much or come from Unix and want to know the differences. And I think that's a good way to get into that. A bit of programming is also provided. Yeah. Plan 9's always been interesting just because it's quite old, but we seem to keep coming back to those ideas. You know, 
just like a lot of the Unix stuff, you know, we've, we've kept it and it's become common across everything. The ideas they had in plan line, like content addressable file systems and like even just the nine PFS and so on, keep coming back uh, as good ideas uh, and people discover them and, and use them in interesting ways. Like the fact that the nine, the plan nine file system stuff, uh, the VFS portability layer is uh, going into beehive to make it possible to um, share a file system from the host into the guest. Yep. And uh, remember that plan nine has been developed or the, some of the concepts have been developed after Unix was out. And so this is an upgrade of sorts, but it never catched on in, in that uh, it was widely adopted. But as Alan said, many of the concepts are now backported, as they would say, into the Unix systems, and they are still valid and reasonable to do. So plenty, there were plenty of things going into the BSDs or in Unix in general that come from Plan 9. All right, time for the news roundup this week. There's always a question of why a new BSD? And this article here tries to answer that. Yeah, so this is a post uh, about the Aris Blue BSD, which I think is trying to pick up where, what was the BSD that just went away? Um, Fury BSD. I Fury think, right? BSD, yeah. Yeah, uh, basically building on top of that. I say this article explains some of the decisions and plans that the Aris Blue BSD team has made why we are making our own thing and what our plans are. We mainly want to talk about five different things, the desktop, package management, software availability, custom software, and the future of the OS. We also plan to explain what the goal of the OS is and how we plan to expand it in the near future. So firstly, desktop environments. Uh, Aris Blue wants to use common and well-known desktops only, while other BSD systems are using extremely themed desktop environments or putting tools on top of window managers like Openbox, RS Blue will have two desktop environments, and if demand grows large enough, then maybe we can add more. So their two main environments are XFCE and GNOME 3, and their plan is not to fill in with themes or extensions and pre-made configs. And it says there are good reasons to theme a desktop, but in order to provide a stable and kind experience, theming and customization should be left to the user. Uh, for package management, they say, let's make it very, very clear. While well, app image and RPM are planned for the system, what RPM? Right now, packages and always will be the core package manager. And the alternative we add are only uh, for app stability for graphical apps, uh, which is why app image and, or maybe something like Flatpak might make sense there. They say, we have no intention to become the Linux of the FreeBSD world where a hundred package managers are added. We have a very strict maximum of three alternative package managers. That still seems like a lot, but okay. Uh, and they talk more about that and how they would, would try to do flat pack or DP package and so on. For software availability, their plan is to add a separate software store built manually for specialized software. Uh, this would include extra package managers people want and how to get that application. Uh, and then finally, their future goals, uh, RS BlueBSD is supposed to be a live CD that is simple, easy, and understandable. We want a strict controlled development environment that allows the user to do what they want. RSBSD is meant to be an office and development focused OS with the mind of uh, on the go people who care about security and privacy while being uh, slightly tech savvy. The goal is not to make a custom desktop OS or to make a future Five Next project that has no real development done and so on. Certainly an interesting uh, approach. Yeah. 
users of RS BlueBSD will get their choices with a stable environment for developers. If you want a good desktop BSD that is not geared towards a live CD, then they recommend GhostBSD. RS BlueBSD really wants a focus on default setups that are plug and play for anyone who needs to work on a live CD and who cares about privacy and freedom. Okay. I don't know. Some of their ideas seem a little out there. Yeah, I mean, you always have to, you know, implement it and maintain it. It's always nice to see people experimenting. Yeah, so that's, uh, we will watch this space and see what uh, comes out of it. And maybe to get something working that's interesting to uh, the mainstream, maybe. Um, but yeah, it's probably too early to tell. But yeah, it's always interesting to see that they picked up the uh, some of the remaining bits from the Fury BSD and maybe get some of the community back together on this project. Then we have a new release of OpenSense. 20.7.5 is out. Yeah, this is just a minor update release. It has some changes to syslog-ng, specifically related to uh, being restarted when the package gets updated. Change the dpinger syslog message to reflect the correct round trip time. Some new web proxy bits. Uh, you know, add the missing x444 header option. Uh, web UI, they've added new field types for base64 data and for virtual IPs. Updated the plugins for Acme Client, Bind, and Crony, and the ports for Monit, PHP, StrongSwan, and also uh, package itself to fix uh, hang during an upgrade. Ah, okay. So yeah, people should uh, always update to the latest version and then be on the safe side. Uh, then we have a little status update from Midnight BSD, the 2.0 release. Apparently, they identified some issues with the 2.0 ISOs uh, that were slated for release with the ZFS bootloader not working. And uh, until this issue is resolved, they are unable to build release ISOs. And then they left the old ones up so they can work fine for anyone using UFS. Um, not sure what the problem exactly is, but uh, hopefully they get that sorted out so they can continue releasing that or give a new version out. Uh, that's all there is for that project. But uh, last but not least, we have our hardened BSD November 2020 status report from Sean Webb. And he writes, hey all, we're getting close to the end of November by the time the blog post came out. Um, <laughs> my wife and I have plans this weekend, so I thought I'd take this time to write new November status report today. On AMD64, uh, he added the hardened BSD no debug kernel. Note that this disables invariance, which has a lot of security side benefits due to assertion checking. Uh, disabling environments also means enabling PAX underscore insecure underscore mode. And he has been working on the ports tree, updating more ports that need extra C flags, LD flags, and more. Uh, the ports-based hardening features are disabled, like uh, PI, RELRO, plus bind now. Uh, I've worked on merging in some code and documentation contributions. He, uh, or they had been working on the first vendor code contribution this month. Oh. I still need to review and merge in their patch for the hardening check port. Uh, their self-hosted Git server is still experiencing issues, but it uh, is still getting more stable as time goes on. We've noticed malicious uh, bot scanning activity over our Tor Onion service endpoints that put a lot of pressure on Git T to the point of crashing Git T. Uh, happens every other week or so. There's some work that he failed to highlight in October. The first is per thread stacks. Uh, they applied both new deltas to mmap with map stack option and libthreads thread stack alloc function. The delta is disabled when hardening.pax.aslr status sysctl uh, tunable is set to one or zero, or if ASLR is disabled for the process. He needs to determine a way to disable the additional randomization added in libthread so that ports with SBCL work again. SBCL requires a deterministic memory layout. Hmm. Okay, 
Uh, then second, uh, he hardens the debug.dumpmodinfo flag. Only privileged ungelled accounts can now access debug.dumpmodinfo. Okay. Uh, he took a brief look at cross DSO CFI again, merging in the latest changes from hardened BSD slash current slash master into the cross DSO CFI feature branch. It seems that FreeBSD switched to ZFS on Linux as the new basis for the upstream repo. The ZFS utilities like SBIN ZPool or SBIN ZFS and perhaps libraries violate cross DSO CFI in some form or fashion. He needs to set up a UFS VM and test ZFS requests there because it's not possible to boot a user land with cross-DSO CFI and root on ZFS anymore. In early December, he plans to catch up on hardened BSD's administrative tasks, like reaching out to October and November's donors to see if they want to be listed on the donors page. And uh, we default to keeping donations anonymous, given the security and privacy aspects hardened BSD promotes. And uh, in the last paragraph, he writes that cross-DSO CFI will start becoming his main focus again as we go into 2021. Cross-DSO CFI is a hard beast to wrangle when, and to pronounce uh, when you have to maintain millions of lines of code in the base OS and plus 33,000 ports and packages built on top of it. It's a huge effort and he's happy to be the guinea pig for LVM's implementation of CFI in a complete OS ecosystem. Cool, very nice update on the latest there. And that brings us right into the Beastie Bits for this week. We found a couple of interesting uh, things that you should check out maybe that might get uh, your attention. Uh, for example, RGA, which is a RipGrab with a bit of extra on top. Uh, so RipGrab can search files pretty fast, but RGA is RipGrab plus search in PDFs, eBooks, Office documents, zip and targz files, among others. Hmm. So it's fairly easy. Uh, you just do RGA, the string you want to search and then give it a directory where different file types are in there and it will tell you in record time where these where the string that you're looking for um is located like in a pdf or in yeah and like it tells you it's on page 34 35 and 38 of this pdf that is super handy mm -hmm. and apparently it's super fast because it is using on the first run um multi-threading and on subsequent runs, uh, gets the information out of a cache with the text extraction. So it becomes almost as fast as searching in plain text text files. Yeah, so looking at their little benchmark, when searching through 65 different PDF files that have 93 slides each, PDF grep took uh, almost 20 seconds, whereas RGA took, looks like, maybe four. And then on a subsequent one, took less than one. Ah, oh, yes. Oh, and a little further down, they tell us that during the extraction, the RGA preproc will compress the data with set standard to a memory cache while simultaneously writing it uncompressed to standard out. And after that's completed, uh, if the memory cache is smaller than two megabytes, it is written to a RKV, is that a, a key value store probably, uh, cache. And that cache is keyed by adapter, file name, and modification time. So if a file changes its context, it's extracted again. Cool. That's cool. It's, yeah. Uh... Reminds me of how much faster git grep is on the second run because all the files are now in my my arc <laughs> on ZFS. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's no port yet because it just freshly came out. And so if you have some time over the holidays, maybe create a little port or package for package source or FreeBSD's package, then everyone can just do package install. Yeah. Uh, looks like he has some other interesting ideas, like adding support for 7-zip to search inside 7-zip stuff. He just hasn't found a nice Rust library for it yet. Add more per-adapter configuration options. For example, being able to say, you know, 
this adapter reads JSON or whatever. Consider a different key value store as a cache instead of RKV because of some weird problems with that. And he says, SQLite is great. <laughs> All other REST alternatives I could find don't allow writing from multiple processes at once. Uh, and then he has a more pie in the sky idea of adding a photograph adapter so that you could, you know, search for mountain and find all photos that have mountains in them. But uh, yeah, that's that's a much different thing than uh, <laughs> crapping for strings in some PDF files and so on. Yeah. But that seems very useful, being able to search, you know, Office documents, zip, tar files, etc., uh, and PDFs. Yeah, like uh, which was the last time this archive had this PDF in it or this, uh, yeah, this file I was looking for or this content. Or, you know, I want to grab through the entire FreeBSD papers repo and I'm looking for this, you know, term, like which papers talk about send file. Yeah, yeah, that's a good use case. Like point it to a directory and just let it find everything that it uh, can. Yep, and the next one, this is in ports or in packages. It's called EXA, is a modern replacement for LS. Yeah, it says you list your files hundreds of times a day, if not more. Why spend your time squinting at black and white text? Well, mine's not black and white, but EXA is an improved file lister with more features and better defaults. It uses colors to distinguish file types and metadata. It, it knows about symlinks, extended attributes, and Git, and it's small, fast, and just a single binary. The output does look pretty interesting. The idea of colorizing the R, W, and X in the permissions differently is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that gives you a bit of a direct indication. And they tell us that Exa queries files in parallel, giving you performance on par with LS, and can also display extended attributes as well as the standard file system information, uh, like inodes or number of blocks and uh, various dates and times. Of course, People using ZFS always ask, what's this inode thing you're talking about? <laughs> well, in ZFS, the inode is is the object number in the in the object set. Mm. But yeah, it's less... So actually, in ZFS, it's more useful because you can do a lot more things with the object number. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I see that, you know, doing the parallelism they have seems to be mostly to address the problems you would have of, you know, Checking the Git status of each of these files when you try to do ls, uh, you know, I can see that end up being slower uh, at the beginning because, you know, having to check the Git status as part of ls. Sometimes when you do ls, you don't want the Git status, but once you've done it once, it'll be cached by your file system anyway, and so it's not that big of a deal. But yeah, so they display that right away with the, the files themselves if they are in a in a repo. And there's mm -hmm. a tree view as well, or a wide view for the people with the wide screens who never seem to end. So you can have multiple columns displayed uh, with the same information as a single LS. Check it out. It's in uh, ports and packages. So just a single install away. And once you thought, hey, this one utility is uh, very simple and I always know what its uh, abbreviation means, then you're sometimes maybe wrong because we found the myriad meanings of PWD in Unix systems. Turns out, uh, it's not what you think it is. Not everywhere, at least. So last week, uh, the author of this blog here uh, ran a poll on Twitter to see what people considered res with respect to the meaning of PWD in Unix and Linux systems. The results were varied, for perhaps good reason. 
So at the end of October 2020, they ran a brief poll on Twitter on which 82 people voted. Uh, the poll is here and the results, uh, they're quite mixed, which at first might seem surprising, but there are reasons for that as well as find out. Of course, you can only put up like four options in a Twitter poll. So um, there was uh, the question of what do you think the P in PWD stands for? 45.1% thought print, 19.5% present, 12.2% thought process, and 23.2% is path name. And it turns out uh, print working directory, the most popular option was print working directory. At first sight, it seems logical, print out the current working directory, where I am right now. However, the description in various versions of the manual for PWD helped drive home that notion. Typically, we see sentences like print name of current working directory or print the current directory. But there are lots of commands that print stuff and are described in that way too, like the ID command or uh, others. So there's print again, like in PID, it's ID. And when you think about it, many, many commands in Unix send information to standard out, like the terminal. That's sort of the point of many of them. Yeah, so why wouldn't it just be called WD for work directory? Right, one, one uh, key less to type. Uh, and here they uh, explain a couple of things from Unix manuals. Uh, but path name or working directory is also possible. So perhaps it really is path name or working directory. That would at least to them uh, make more sense. Not only does it eschew the redundancy of print, it's also more specific about the output. If I'm in home slash DJA, for example, then invoking PWD will tell me that, like where I am, including the whole path and not just DJA. And there's also arguments for process working directory, present working directory, and uh, some history from Multics. But we leave you to read that part yourself. I can see this point about process work directory because each different process has a working directory. Um... But you can only run it as the shell most. I guess you could fork it from something else. But ah, so uh, talking of history, we could go back further to pre-Unix in the form of Multics, which indirectly gave rise to Unix or Unix. In the list of Multics commands, we can see nestled among the similarly named commands are print underscore wdir to display the working directory. Again, seems to bias towards print work directory. <laughs> yeah. This week's episode of BSD Nano is brought to you by Tarsnap, online backups for the truly paranoid. So head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD now and start doing your backups. You will thank me later. The reasons to choose Tarsnap over some other option are that Tarsnap is the secure, efficient online backup service. Your data is can only be accessed with your personal key, which you generate and keep on your machines. Uh, Tarsnap or th anyone else uh, can't access your data even if they wanted to, because they don't have the key to decrypt it. Tarsnap is also the only backup client where the source code is available to you. You don't need to trust the people at Tarsnap. You can check the encryption yourself. And deduplication. Only the unique data between your current files and the previous backup is uh, compressed and uploaded. So this reduces the bandwidth and the storage required, saving you money. Basically, is what makes it possible to continuously backup your laptop using Tarsnap, because it can take all your data, deduplicate it, and come up with just the blocks that have changed, then compress those, encrypt them, and upload them. That means that the amount you have to back up each day is as small as possible. Only the actual bits of the file that change, not just, you know, just because you changed the file doesn't mean you changed the whole file. So unlike something like Dropbox, Tarsnap is actually finding the smallest piece that changed and then compressing that and uploading it. Uh, and Tarsnap runs on every 
Unix-like operating system there is, whether that's BSD, Linux, Mac OS, SIGWIN, or even the Windows subsystem for Linux. So it's super easy to sign up. Just go to the website, sign up, put some money in your account, uh, and you can start using it. And you know the money gets used up uh, based on your usage. So 25 cents per gigabyte per month for storage and 25 cents per gigabyte for data you transfer. And then that's all there is to it. So you just put some money in, start doing backups and test them. If you need help, you can check out the book FreeBSD Mastery, uh, or sorry, Tarsnet Mastery, uh, that has lots of recipes and help to get the most out of Tarsnet. Okay, now it's time for the feedback and questions part of this episode. Uh, we keep getting feedback, but we could use more than we need to fill whole episodes for 2021, right? So send us your feedback, show ideas, anything that you want to, uh, to cover here to feedback at bsdnow.tv. First one this week is Carl with a camera help question. And Carl writes, hi, Benedict and Alan. First of all, thank you for your work on the podcast. I look forward to it every week. Hey, great. Uh, I have had intermittent problems recently with Firefox and a Logitech, Logitech C270 camera on FreeBSD. The camera usually works, but it's the sound that sometimes breaks. Either I can't hear others or they can't hear me. I suspect Firefox may have been at fault here, but it may have been the microphone on the webcam. So I'm thinking of switching, of using a headset with the motherboard microphone input. So my interview question for you is, okay, uh, what combination of hardware and software do you use for online meetings such as Google Meet? For help there, um, well, if you can't hear other people, the problem is definitely not the microphone in your webcam. There's been a lot of work by Kahul and other people in FreeBSD to make... Firefox use either uh, improvements to OSS or I think you can also compile Firefox and or Chrome with support for SNDIO, the OpenBSD sound system. And people have found that works better. Because I know Baptiste Tresson uses, I think, Firefox uh, on FreeBSD to, to do Zoom video conferences. So even that working is, is pretty good. Yeah, and like I know the, the FreeBSD Friday streams are streamed with OBS uh, from a FreeBSD laptop. Or knock one of the two. Yep. So they eat their own dog food. Yep. Um, as far as the question of using uh, the onboard analog audio versus uh, something like a USB headset, I've used both. Currently, I mainly use the USB one because I like having the separation. Like uh, in my day-to-day -day use, I have uh, my computer audio coming out of the speakers built into my monitor, but the video conference stuff is all on the headset and so that even if i'm playing video games or something i can hear people separate from the other stuff that's happening on the computer uh, and i definitely prefer firefox i use firefox for all of my meeting stuff except google meets where i actually launch chrome but part of that is also that uh, my chrome is set up with my at freebsd.org google user from when we were doing the office hour stuff so it's authorized to allow people into the meetings of the FreeBSD organization, whereas my normal Google account is not. So uh, I use Firefox like 98% of the time. But yeah, thank you for your question. And uh, yeah, we look forward to have you as a listener every week. Next question comes from Alejandro, I think. Uh, domain registrar uh, is the topic. 
and he wants to know which are your favorite domain registrar companies and hosting companies. I currently use Namecheap as my registrar and they seem okay, but when I use them to host my very uh, simple static site a while back, my site always seemed very slow to load. Uh, so favorite domain registrars, uh, I like Gandhi, uh, G-A-N-D-I, they're French. Uh, they used to employ a bunch of FreeBSD people. I think most of those people have moved on to other stuff, but uh, they definitely have some FreeBSD-based infrastructure there. And I originally moved because they offered discounts uh, for FreeBSD committers. <laughs> mm. But they're generally good pricing. and uh... Yes, uh, they're good pricing, and they have a really nice API that the like acme.sh um, Let's Encrypt client supports. Uh, so it's uh, that's been really handy. And I like their web interface and so on. I also have some domains that Namecheap, and I'm happy enough with them as well. Hosting, I don't have a great answer for because <laughs> I've run some type of hosting of my own right. uh, for the last 18 years. I guess even before that. Yeah, for all of the last 20 years, I've had my own web hosting somewhere and not needed to buy hosting. I've mostly sold hosting. Um, so I, I have no experience with random web hosting companies. Well, there is DigitalOcean. Well, it depends. Like, yes, if you want to operate the server yourself, then yes, you can get a DigitalOcean or, or similar like Vulture or a bunch of other, uh, get a FreeBSD machine with, you know, half a gig of RAM or whatever for $5 a month and put your website on it. But in that case, you have to manage updating the operating system and running the web server and the certificates and so on. Whereas a web host is going to do a lot of that work for you for that same $5 a month, but you don't get the entire 512 megabytes of RAM to yourself for with the shared hosting. So it's up to you, which you think is better. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but I think um, uh, regarding the slow loading, I think that's not... Um, <laughs> but yeah, if it's a static site, that. it shouldn't be slow. That's the point. Hmm. But try switching to a different one and then maybe you get a different experience. Uh, otherwise, people can also send us recommendations of their own and we'll link this to this issue. And then maybe we have a little collection of good web uh, registrar companies and hosting ones. So yeah, thanks for that question. And uh, next is Johnny uh, with thoughts on 372. That's our episode number. And uh, Johnny writes, Hi guys, for what it's worth, there is good reason to fetch the code for the suckless DWM and friends instead of installing from the packages. The idea is that all these tools can be patched and the shortcut keys are defined in a config header file. So when customizing them, you need the source so you can update and patch, recompile. It's just the way suckless does it similar to Xmonad, which is written in the Haskell programming language, and you configure it with Haskell. So the Suckless software is a minimalist, and they are written in C, configured with a header file. This is actually typical for tiling window managers and allow the user to fully customize their workstations. With that said, I never did understood why there was packages for these window managers since it's not easy to customize them, which is expected by those using these. Using the ports for these make better sense than packages. As always, I never miss a show and you never disappoint, Keep up the good work. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the porting issues are, or the, the efforts are there to just make it easy to get the basic version of these uh, window managers or the tiling ones. And then, of course, as you said, do the customization yourself a little bit. A little, a little, I did a little bit of experimenting with i3 recently, and I let my students use that and configure it in a very similar way. And so they just needed, like, to change three lines and then each time they open a new window. Um, so I had them like define one for terminal, one for uh, file browser and one for web browser. 
And so if they switch to that one with the file browser, XFE would open. And if they switch to the one with the web, then their favorite browser would open. And if they close that, it would reopen again. But if you switch when it's still open, it wouldn't restart a new one. And so that is a simple thing that you can just um, do with a one or two line change in the config file. I'm not sure I've ever understood the appeal of compiling the configuration into the application. Like it can't possibly be that slow to read the configuration at start. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If you really want to optimize. But what do I know? I'm, I'm not that into customizing my desktop. Enlightenment did want, that, I think. They had I just a... want the buttons not to move on me. And that's, <laughs> that's about, I yeah. can deal with anything else. For me, it's the issue with uh, background wallpapers. Like you have this wallpaper and it's kind of nice to look at, but you have all these, you know, windows in front of it. You don't see it the, the whole time, even if you yeah, make it if, transparent. If you're looking at your desktop, you're not working hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the breaks, it's nice to remove all these windows, but come on, it's most of the time just background noise <laughs> in the truest sense of the meaning. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, it's interesting to uh, what kind of uh, configuration uh, things are out there for window managers and friends. Yep. Okay, so yeah, thanks for this edition. And that, I think, is the end of this episode. Again, if you have anything that you want to let us know, uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv. We're also live on Twitch while we record this on uh, twitch.tv slash bsdnow. Or follow us on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash bsdnow. And uh, we are also on IRC during the episode uh, on irc.geekshed.net in the bsdnow channel. Thank you for listening, as always, and you hear us next week, as always, as well. Bye.